I'm from rural Pennsylvania, which means I grew up on well water. I have a big family, but frankly, by the time I came around, it was mainly just me and my parents. Still, though, I guess old habits die hard because my dad would always say, don't take too long of shower because the well would run dry. And I thought that was just dad being a dad, and that was an idle threat. Well, it wasn't. One day, our well dried up. And I mean dry. There was just no more water. Turns out, when your well dries up, you have to drill a new one. But I mean, that's a process. Folks need to come out, drill a bunch of pilot holes hundreds of feet into the ground, find another source, and then put all the proper equipment in the ground. The whole process can take weeks, if you're lucky, which luckily we were. But in the meantime, we needed water. And luckily, we had very generous neighbors. Now, we didn't shower their place or anything like that. We literally hooked up about a dozen hoses that ran them from their house to our house through a woods over about a few hundred yards. And for those couple weeks, we both survived off of their well. And eventually, we got our well dug out. And this was a relatively minor inconvenience in the grand scheme of things because I got to recognize that I am super fortunate to not have to worry about water. Everyone has a story, even, or maybe especially, scientists. Science affects each and every one of us. Let's talk about it. From the American Geophysical Union, I'm Shane Hanlon, and this is Sci and Tell. All right, I'm looking forward to this one. Our interviewee today is a colleague who's always a joy to talk to with some incredible stories. I'm going to bring in Nisha to introduce her. Hey, Nisha. Hey. So what do we got today? So on this episode, we interviewed Paula Buchanan, a disaster scientist and emergency management researcher. For Paula, there's no such thing as science if it doesn't benefit our communities. And that's the mantra she's carried throughout her entire career. I'm very excited to share this episode with everyone. Our interviewer was Paul Mullen. I'm Paula Buchanan. I am a disaster scientist and an emergency management researcher. I research disasters uh, uh, across the world. It's usually called disaster management or disaster science. In the United States, we actually call it emergency management. So that's why I always put disaster science and emergency management in the title of what I research to explain it to more people. So my research actually focuses on the people in those disasters. Quite often, um, you know, there's an entire field of science called engineering where people look at how levees are built or how bridges are built. And if using that same kind of expo- uh, that same scenario, I look at the people who actually use those bridges and dams and how you can actually more effectively communicate with those people as to why that dam is there, how it can be useful, So that's what I'm looking at is how you can more effectively communicate the risk of different disasters, say a levee breach or, or, you know, a a bridge falling down, how I can more effectively communicate with people from what's called like behavior science from the public health sector. Quite often in emergency management and disaster science, the people element of the equation is left out, but it's the people that are that use those systems and those bridges and those levees and those waterways that are built. So. 
that's what I do. I focus on the people and how to more effectively communicate with them so they can actually empower themselves to actually do something. I've always been interested in science, and I am going to get a little kind of wonky here for a minute. There's kind of the bench scientists, like the biologists and microbiologists and the chemists that do all this fancy stuff in labs and lab coats. And then there's what's called the social scientists who are more interested in the people aspect of things, right? So I folk, I'm more of a social scientist now, but I did start out, unlike a lot of my fellow social scientists, as a bench scientist. I was a biology major. I always liked science. I always liked like animals. I was one of the few girls in elementary school that thought lizards were cute. I thought they were adorable, right? But I didn't want to be a veterinarian and, you know, take care of animals, but I was interested in them. So I I think what really got me interested was just in biology and chemistry class playing with microscopes. I just think microscopes are really cool, looking at stuff, figuring out what's going on under the microscope. So I think that's how I actually got into science. It's all the microscope's fault for being kind of this cool tool. So that's probably it. Just, you know, an interest in it from the get-go. As my family likes to say, my mom was smart, my dad was smart. So it's no surprise that Paula likes being smart, nerdy, and bookish. So, you know, it's like, look, it's genes, it's nature and nurture at work, you know. So, you know, it does help being a little intelligent to go into science, but, you know, all kinds of people can go into it. There's actually an entire citizen scientist movement, which I think is really interesting, getting people out there helping scientists, not like as study subjects, so to speak, but as peers going out and doing the work that um, a whole bunch of scientists do. It's so empowering for people to get involved in science. And then when did you make that transition to social science? That's actually pretty recent. I have, um, I have, as as my dad calls me, I'm a, I'm a, I don't mean to be a direct, a degree collector. It just so happens that you know I pivot in my career and I'm inspired by different things. But I started out in public health, which like emergency management, and disaster science, more practitioner based. And I think, and then you'll hear this from a lot of people who are in the emergency management and disaster science space. I think. I was drawn to the area, but didn't know it existed. You know, public health has been around for a couple of centuries now. So, you know, you can, if you're a biology major, it's pretty easy to transition into public health because they are related. But, you know, as its own academic practice, emergency management, disaster science are very new. For example, you don't find departments of emergency management. You will find, say, a department of public affairs or political affairs that has some disaster scientists in it. Or you'll find some geographers who do all these really cool things with maps who focus on disasters and mapping them. So I will say there wasn't any one disaster that made me think, oh, this is what I want to research, which is pretty common in the field. You know, there's a personal connection to a lot of people in my field and why they pick what they did. I just, I found it and didn't even realize I was looking for it. So it's such a, you know, so many people, you know, they go to school, they they study something and they end up in a career and they just stick with that, you know, career for better or worse for the rest of their lives. How, you know, there's risk, I guess, in switching uh, and, you know, in these these kind of these right turns you've taken along the way. What has your mindset been as far as like, you know, all right, hey, this is different. This is a change. This maybe there's a risk, but you want to see it out. Well, I will say 
graduating from Tulane, living in the city like New Orleans, when Katrina happened, you know, that's like that's like one of those watershed moments in the entire field. So I will say not just myself. I think a lot of people actually decided to transition eventually after what happened with Katrina. And I will say I, I and I think I'm like my mom in this standpoint. I'm very much a lifelong learner. Uh, I'm not one of those people that thinks because I have my terminal degree or even if I have my bachelor's degree that I'm smart. I know a lot about one thing. I'm academically proficient to use some fancy words there in one area that does not necessarily make me smart. Um, and I think that's one thing that we get wrong in academia is we think because we're P- we have a PhD or a term a equivalent terminal degree that we know it all. And we know it all about one thing. And the world is made up of all kinds of things. And I think that's where we as academics, you know, get some things wrong. You know, we should be able to, for example, communicate our science and what we do to diverse groups of people. So you got a journal article published. So what? That's my big thing. It's like, that's great. That'll probably help you get tenure. But what does that mean to a fifth grader? As I was saying in a presentation last week, what does it mean to grandma? And for me, you know, I think that's what I think about and what I do because I am doing research in a field that I didn't know that much about, emergency management. I basically got my boots on the ground, as they say, in the field, and I completed what's called CERT training. It's a community emergency response. I can't remember what the T stands for. I think it's maybe T. (laughs) But it's basically a way to empower people in the community with this training that allows us to be able to triage patients, you know, until the EMTs get there. You know, how do I set someone's arm with a blanket, you know, or a sheet? You know, how can I help the emergency response teams and police and fire that are coming in until they can get there because there is a delay? So I did CERT training. I also participate in what's called a Citizens Fire Academy, which allowed me to go through just a little wee bit of the training that firemen and EMTs actually do. I got to wear what's called the turnout gear, which is about 30 pounds. I put the oxygen pack on my back, which is about another 30. And I just teetered backwards. You can't see me because I'm just talking, but I'm about five foot tall and I'm pretty tiny. So um, that gear in the deep south in Atlanta (laughs) in August was heavy, but it made me, you know, kind of walk a little bit in the shoes and that toner gear that firefighters do every day of their lives when they're working to just be able to empathize a little bit about what they do. The way I usually explain it is that I have all these different tools in my toolbox. You know, if I had stayed and gotten like a PhD in biology and a master's in biology, I would have a hammer in my toolbox. And it would be a fine-tuned, high-end, titanium-based hammer. You know, it'd be fancy, right? But instead, I have a hammer. I have nails. I have a screwdriver. I have a Phillips. I have a flathead. I actually do know the difference between those two, which a lot of scientists don't. I, you know, I have different kinds of screws. I have needle nose pliers and the other kind, which I can't remember what they're called. But I have all these different tools in my toolbox that I can use. So I think it's more preference. You know, some people are only interested in one thing. Well, I will say as um, I guess people can't see me, but I am a woman of color. I'm a black woman. And I did start in the biological sciences or the bench sciences as they're called as a whole. And 
it's changed now, but you used to not see a lot of women of color, specifically black women in the bench. You really did not. Um, if you did see us, we were usually processing specimens for someone else to actually do more work on later. So I will say that, you know, that's probably been one of the biggest hurdles is, you know, I'm a black woman and I'm very proud of that. But I think what's been hard for me is the, are the hurdles that other people have dealing with that fact. For example, looking at my CV or my resume and assuming that I am not a person of color. It's pretty obvious I'm a woman by my name, you know, and I am, you know, cisgender, so it's pretty easy to recognize. But, you know, just I've actually, and this has happened multiple times in my career, where people have seen my resume, haven't seen me, I walk in the room, and jaws drop. That happens multiple times. And, you know, you just have to realize that it's not about you. It is about them. It's their issue. But, you know, that can make it so you might not have as many opportunities as you might have. But, you know, I've never let something like systemic racism or discrimination hold me back. But I will say it is very frustrating to see people who are more kind of on the mediocre side of things, but don't look like me, who get the jobs. That's very difficult to deal with, but I think that all people of color have to deal with that. So, you know, you just chalk it up as, you know, I have a cousin who's a jazz singer in the Netherlands, and she always used to tell me, remember this Chinese uh, proverb, you know, fall down seven times, get up eight. And that basically says it all, you know? So yeah, get up those eight times if you fall seven and realize that a lot of times those falls or those failures aren't because of you, it's because of others that want to whatever, for whatever reason, get in your way of succeeding as opposed to helping you like go down the path of success. This is, and I realize this is kind of an unfair question I've been asking people, but work-life balance. How does that fit into the science community for you? Oh, that is not an unfair question. And I always tell people, you know, as uh, where I used to teach for over 10 years, I was the only staff, not even faculty of color. Even the maids were white. So I was it. Students would actually just stare across the hall into my office like, wow, there's the unicorn. It was just really sad. And I I, I can attest that women, especially, and also people of color, you know, one thing you have to learn to say in academia is no. That's the most powerful word. And that's where I get my work-life balance. I will definitely tell someone no. They will, uh, you know, people be like, oh, my God, you know, we need you to have come to this diversity luncheon to represent the university and this diversity dinner and the president's house for that. And, you know, they'll be having you run ragged while you're still doing the rest of your job. And so you have to be able to say no. And that's my main thing is, you know, I don't have meetings on Mondays or Fridays. There's got to be a really good reason. Say you're abroad in another time zone. All my meetings are on certain times and certain days of the week. And, you know, I will tell people I do not meet on Mondays and Fridays. You have to understand that with me because those are my days for doing research and, you know, catching up with anything that I forgot with being busy for the rest of the week. So, yeah, a work-life balance is very important. And I do wish that in academia, more of us would learn how to say no, just maybe do it more politely than some of us do. But, you know, just no, that's how I do. That's how I maintain work-life balance.
information is power in academia and it also is money you know things can be your intellectual property and unfortunately we don't care to share that stuff a lot um so, and my science is all about sharing you know so it sounds really hokey but sharing is caring and vice versa um so i like working with people um because it's you can learn so much from them you know no offense to us and that to, to to we people in academia we all are for better or for worse a certain type and a lot of us don't have experience working outside in what I call the real world, which is outside of academia. And I've done that. And so I do have a different take on the research that I do. Now, do I love also just looking at some rows of an Excel spree coding data? Yeah, I like doing that too. Um, but it's always interesting to hear from people different perspectives that you didn't think about that can impact the research that you do and why you do it. When you, when you think about what what you do in in disaster management what are what are the biggest challenges right now because it seems like every time you turn on the news there's a disaster at this point right yes the biggest challenge in my opinion is and this kind of goes back to meeting people where you are, where where they are as opposed to where you want them to be is for people to understand and to accept that we all have a role in this stuff you know, um, there are, there's probably where Dr. Hayhoe is. There's probably entire areas of the state of Texas, for example, you can't even say climate, climate science at a public, you know, meeting. Um, people will just walk out. So um, that's why I really love the work that she does because she frames it in a different way. Um, like, for example, I'm looking at water, specifically drinking water. And so what I ask people is, have you noticed your water bill has gone up? Why do you think your water bill is going up? Um, are your pipe, pipes clogged? You know, what is it that you might be doing and how can you improve it so your, your pipes don't get clogged? Now, those might seem really small, granular things, but they are related to climate change because we are losing the amount of water that we have because of climate change. But do I mention the, the phrase climate change to them? No, because that's not meeting them where they are. It's meeting them where I think they should be. And, you know, that's very presumptuous of myself as a scientist. Um, so I, I think that communication is hard because scientists have a tendency to wave their finger and politicians do it too um, in our faces and tell us this, this proves climate change is real. And yeah, I know that, but you know, there's facts and then there's perceptions, attitudes, and beliefs. And a lot of times there's a gulf between those two camps. This is how I live my professional and probably how I should live my personal life. Paula has a great point. We usually need to understand why people believe what they believe before we try to change their mind on something. That's great advice. And I want to thank Paula for talking with us. Special thanks to NASA for making this episode possible, to Nisha to, for producing, and to Paul Wolin for conducting the interview. If you've liked what you've heard, stay tuned for future episodes. You can subscribe to Scientel wherever you get your podcasts and find us at Scientel allspelledout.org. From these scientists in our respective home studios to all of you out there in the world, thanks for listening to our stories.